morning, everyone. It's good to be able to worship the Lord Jesus Christ today. That reading of our text of Scripture, if you have your Bible, just keep it open with you as we'll probably be, we'll be going back and forth between referring to our text as I preach today. You know, a while back, um, I read a humorous story actually about a zoo that was actually known for its great collection of animals, and as the story goes, one day the gorilla in the zoo died, and as a result of that, wanting to keep up the appearance of having a full range of animals, the zookeeper decides to hire a man with a gorilla suit and stick him in the exhibition. It was the first day on the job for this guy playing the gorilla, and he tried to do the best that he could, but he really didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well, so he did his best. And as he tried to move convincingly and to operate and think and function like a gorilla, he made a mistake and he got too close to the wall of the enclosure and he tripped, fell down into the moat, and tumbled into the lion exhibit. And so the guy, realizing where he is, begins to scream and yell, convinced that his life was about to end, until the lion spoke to him and said, Be quiet, you're going to get both of us fired. <laughs> No. I'm, I, you know, I don't know what to make of that story. I'm pretty sure it's probably not true, you know, but it's hilarious because um, of the ridiculousness of the lengths that people will go to in our world to keep up a deception or keep up, you know, an image of something, pretending to be something that they're not, you know. You know, if there's anything that people dislike in our world, it's that they hate hypocrisy, they don't like people or things that pretend to be something when they're actually not. Now, I've heard of all sorts of people. Maybe you've wandered in today, and this is the first time you've been to a church before. You want to know what this Christian thing is about and so on. And, you know, some people leave and they say, wow, that's the most amazing group of people I've ever met. Other people walk out and they say, the church is great. It's just it would be better if it weren't full of hypocritical Christians. Now, let me just back up and I want to say this, that Christians are not perfect people. They're human beings like everyone else. They make mistakes, they sin, they react sometimes, unfortunately, in ungodly ways. But this does not necessarily mean that a professing Christian is a hypocrite. See, if a Christian sins and repents and asks for forgiveness, even 70 times, 7 times, we can forgive them. It's absolutely infuriating. But if you're a parent, you understand what that's like. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to have something desirable when you don't. Hypocrisy is saying that you are one thing, even if it's only one time and living completely different. What we don't like, it's not people who make mistakes and admit them and ask for forgiveness. What we don't like are people who say one thing and do another and think that they've done absolutely nothing wrong and there's nothing that they need to change in their life. And the Christian who says that they're a follower of Jesus Christ and lives in sin, even in one area of their life and thinks nothing wrong of that, feels no sadness or need to repent, repent that's hypocrisy. And even that, even that unrepentant sin, living in a way which does not accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even the Lord Jesus himself despises. You know, Jesus himself says on that last day, right, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works? And they'll say, get away from me. I never knew you, you workers 
of lawlessness. You know, as we look at our text today about fighting the good fight, which is, I think, the main thrust and the main point of this text today, my prayer for us and my hope is that God would just open our eyes and to help us see that true Christians aren't perfect people, but they're not hypocrites either, and that when they do sin, they do repent of their sin and turn back to Him. True Christians are those who fight daily against their sin and strive after godliness and live in the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ every single day, growing in Christ-like character and honoring Him with their lives. That's my hope for us today. So before we launch in today, I'm just going to pray, and let's just ask the Lord Jesus to help us, to speak to us through His text, and to open our hearts and our minds to worship Him. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for sending your Son on the cross to die for our sins. There is no great Savior who is comparable to Him in this world. All the religions in this world, all that the wisest people have to offer, O oh God, have nothing, not a candle, God, to shine on the work and person of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So, Father, I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see in this text today as we study, as we look, what you want to speak to our thirsty souls. Teach us about you, God, and open our eyes, God, to see the greatness of what it means, God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Show us the joy of Christ and help us to passionately pursue our Lord to the very end of our days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, let's begin by rereading verses uh, 11 to 12. I'll read out loud for us. The Apostle Paul speaking here. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, two weeks ago, when we looked at verses 3 to 10, we saw that Paul had painted a very vivid portrait of the kind of hypocritical or false Christians to avoid in the church of Jesus Christ. And these people, as he described them, are individuals, he says, who are puffed up with conceit, thinking they know a lot about being a Christian, yet their own lives are absolute train wrecks. People you don't want to follow. They're argumentative, they're divisive, their lives are full of friction and dissension, and basically peace doesn't follow them, but conflict does. You know, these are people, some of them, who believe that faith in God is but a ticket to a better life. In other words, God is my genie. I like to rub, and I hope that he gives me a better house, a better career, a nicer family, or ease and comfort in life. But you know what Paul warns about in that previous text is he says that such behaviors are absolutely incompatible with genuine, legit, true Christianity. In fact, he even goes on to say something that has become a proverb in the English language the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. See, enriching your bank account might actually lead to you bankrupting your soul as you begin to choose things like pleasure over godly piety. You choose things like ease over endurance and following Jesus Christ even when it's tough. 
You choose things like independence and the pride that your wealth seems to give you rather than dependence and prayer towards God. You know, money is very dangerous, you know, as a substance if used not carefully. But what does Paul tell Timothy to do? In contrast to that picture he's just painted in the previous seven verses, he says, but as for you, O man of God, you flee these things. You run away from it. Don't dabble with it. Now, this phrase, man of God, that he uses to address him is really interesting because it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. It's actually a phrase that is used numerous times in the Old Testament to describe people like Samuel, Elijah, Moses, even unnamed prophets who all spoke in the name of the Lord. So these individuals, prophets of God, were people who lived by God's law in the way that they functioned in everyday life, and they also preached God's word and told people what God had to say, even when it was unpopular in their culture, at great risk to their own personal lives. Their hearers rejected them, they were threatened, and yet they were faithful to God's word. See, This is what it meant in the Old Testament to be a man of God. It was an individual who spoke in the authority of God and lived and followed God. And so when Paul's speaking here to Timothy and telling him, you, O man of God, he's saying, Timothy, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you as a Christian, you're like those holy prophets. You speak in the name of God and you live in accordance with the message that you have been given God's word. You know the gospel, so preach it and live it, just like them. You live it, and part of that means you run away from sin. Now, this command to run away from sin is not unique to this little part of Timothy. It actually appears a bunch of other times in the New Testament. For example, you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul gives the instructions and says, flee from sexual immorality. A little farther on in chapter 10, he explains to them, my beloved, Therefore, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22, the follow-up letter to this letter in Timothy. He speaks and says, Timothy, flee youthful passions. You know that Christians are actually supposed to be expert runners. You know, the normal Christian life is a sweaty life because God has commanded us to run away when temptations present themselves just as Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife when she tried to seduce him. You know, I put this in your outline of your writing. Number one, true Christians fight the good fight by running away from the temptations and the idols of this world. That's what we're commanded to do. Don't bandy around with them. Don't entertain them. Get out of there and stay away from these things that will threaten to take your soul. But see, Christians aren't just commanded to run away from sin. I think I'm worried about sometimes too often. Christians are just known by what we run away from. But that's hardly admirable to be known as a person who runs away from something. Let's not be defined by what we are not, but let's be defined by what we are. Just as Christians are to be known by what we run away from, we're also to be known by what we run towards. And this is what Paul is getting at with his next imperative here where he says, pursue chase after, run after, and then he lists six things in three pairs, of, uh, three pairs of what a Christian should run afterwards instead. Now, the first pair that he lists out here is righteousness and godliness. Now, righteousness doesn't he- mean here the imputed righteousness that Jesus Christ gives you by faith through him that saves you and makes you right in God's eyes 
uh, in a uh, judicial sort of way. That's our Christian theology that's true, but he's using the word righteousness here just in the ordinary sense of the word. And just means righteous as in living rightly, that is according to God's standards and not according to the standards of this world or the standards that you like to make up in your own heart and you say, this is what it means to live a good life. No, he's saying righteousness here as in living according to God's standards for how you are to live. The second word that he pairs with this is the word godliness. And now we've talked about this word because it's appeared before in Timothy, and really what it means is having an internal attitude of respect and reverence towards God, and everything follows from that. So in 1 Timothy 4.12, we looked at it earlier, when Paul says, train yourself for godliness, it means having a God-centered life. Everything flows out of what's internal, a God-centered focus in your life. And it's something we grow in and we train ourselves in life as Christians. This is why Christians look so different. Some are more sanctified than others. Just as some people who have been working out in the gym after five years look a certain way, a person working out in the gym after five days does not look anything like that. It takes time. It's hard to judge Christians by the cover. You know what I mean? That's, that's on them on the outside. But Christians are to train themselves and to grow in godliness. So what we learn here from this text, this little section here, is that what God desires is not only a God-fearing inward disposition and internal attitude, but also godly, righteous, external conduct as well from Christians, internal and external. The second pair, faith and love, really is very similar to this as well. Faith and love actually appear dozens of times in the New Testament, and they really are inseparable parts of genuine Christian faith, uh, the Christian walk. For example, in Ephesians 1.15, when you read about the pair together, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. You see what Paul's done there. Basically, he says, faith and love go together. Your faith in Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. And he repeats the same thing when he's greeting the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And these are just two verses of many in the New Testament that speak that way. Really, here's the point. For the apostle and the way that he thought of Christian faith and Christian love, they were inseparable. They were always paired together. The internal reality of faith is always to be paired with the external reality of good works done in the name of that faith. And that translates into love for God's people. Again, it's internal and it's external. The fifth pair, I mean the third pair, number five and six, steadfastness and gentleness is really the same as well. Steadfastness in its noun and its verb form also appears dozens of times in the New Testament and it is used in the vast majority of those instances as a call for Christians to endure and to persevere through the trials of life so that all the, all the way through life until they see Jesus Christ again in glory. So Christians are people who are called to persevere in the Christian faith and not to give up halfway. So for example, when you read verses like Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaking, says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10, 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul's second letter after this. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. In other words, what he's saying, the implications here, is that 
true, genuine Christianity is an enduring, persevering Christianity. Again, it's an internal quality of steadfastness that's paired with an external quality, the last one that he lists here, of gentleness. So you're steadfast, you persevere, and you're gentle. Paul talks about how a Christian leader must be gentle in 2 Timothy, correcting his opponents with this gentleness, hoping also to be able to win them with the truth. So all this to say that is, when you look at all the pairs that Paul has listed here in these six, six things, what he is saying is that the inner qualities of godliness, a God-centered heart that is, faith, steadfastness or perseverance, need to go hand in hand in the Christian life with three outward qualities as well. Righteousness or right living, gentleness, the way that we treat others, and also love for your Christian brothers and sisters and for this world that's around you. To be a Christian is to be an individual in which your insides match your outsides. So, when Paul is calling Timothy as a man of God to pursue these six things, what he's saying is, Timothy, as an individual who preaches the gospel and lives the gospel, what I want you to be is a consistent human being. I want you to be God-centered on the inside, and God-centeredness on the inside will play itself out in the way that you treat other people in a godly, Christ-honoring way. I put this in your outline. Number two, what's a true Christian? True Christians Fight the good fight by running towards God and pursuing Christ-like character and Christ-exalting deeds. We run away from sin, but that's not what we are primarily known for. We are also known for running towards Christ-likeness and growing to be like Him. You know, and to double down on this command, just to make it even clearer, Paul goes on to use two more metaphors just to reiterate what he's talking about. Look with me at verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So you, you see that here, fight the good fight. What does that mean? This is the first sort of synonymous phrase that he's using to give another metaphor to describe what he has just spoken about in terms of running away from sin and running towards God. He casts it in terms of combat or athletic language, communicating to us, really, there's a level of intensity, combat nature of this exercise. So that's why I wrote my, point, uh, my outline points this way. It's about fighting the good fight. What does it mean to fight the good fight? Run like you're in a fight. You know, we have to stop, brothers and sisters, often and ask ourselves, does our Christian life look like it's a fight or does it look like a holiday? Is it about holiness or is it about a holiday? But Paul doesn't stop there. He uses another metaphor and piles this one on to reiterate his purposes. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, that's really interesting, right? Because even though eternal life is gifted to us by faith in Jesus Christ, he's still using the language as if you need to seize it, you need to grab it, you need to hold on to it. See, just because God calls us does not mean that we are completely passive. Now, I know some people might be thinking, wait a minute, uh, what is this? Is this a type of works righteousness? Are, are, are you saying that we'll lose our salvation if we don't endure? What happens to people who profess Jesus and then later turn away from Christ? Now, 
I think, in a nutshell, the best way to answer this is if a person turns their back on Jesus Christ, it shows that what they never had truly was deep roots in Him in the first place and are like one of those two soils that, you know, either grows up on rocky ground or the thorns of the world choke it out. Either way, it starts off somewhere, but in the end it shows it really never was rooted in Christ. Those who are truly born again, those who are elect, those who are called to salvation, they will endure They will run away from sin, and they will run towards the things of God. And the encouragement from fellow believers, their daily choices to follow Jesus, the work in the church, the ministry of the words from the pulpit of their church, is the means, I think, by which God perseveres them so that they stay on the right path and enter into glory and finish that race. It's really interesting because this is how Paul talks. Like you read 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Now, you catch that when you read that verse. Paul is saying that he endures everything in his ministry, all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of hardship, for the sake of the elect, that is, people whom God has chosen by him to be saved. So, Paul's faithful ministry is the means by which God accomplishes his saving purposes for those that he has chosen. The two are not incompatible with each other. Now, godliness is hard work, and it's not optional in the Christian life. And this is how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But don't think for a moment, just because we work, that we ourselves are the instrumental cause behind why we are saved. The rest of that verse actually reads, For it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the Christian life is a life that says, I work, but yet not I, but through Christ in me. There is another who works inside of me. People look at Christians and they say, how can you handle that amount of stress and suffering in life? And you say, I am enduring, but not I, but another who lives inside of me. These were the Apostle Paul's words, right? As he spoke about Jesus Christ, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives inside of me. This Christian is a strange paradox, right? Because when you look at a Christian, you're actually seeing two people. There is the person that's standing before you, and then there's another, the Almighty God, whose Holy Spirit lives inside of them and lives inside of them. You know, we work out our salvation, but God ultimately works. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is very simple. Yes, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. But the one thing that the gospel is not is the gospel is not simplistic. Eternal life is not simply the result of speaking the words or the right words of a prayer that automatically save you. See, faith alone saves, but true saving faith is never alone, and the evidence of true saving faith is that it is always accompanied by deeds, the fruit of one's life that gives visible witness and testimony to the invisible transformation that has occurred on the inside, the supernatural work of God called the new birth. 
You know, I think it's very sad that North American individualism has erroneously reduced Christianity to a mere one-time private decision that is made between a person and God after praying something like the sinner's prayer. Uh, and sinner's prayer, for those of you who don't know, goes something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life, and I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Now, is the content of this prayer wrong? Absolutely not. It's a great prayer. It speaks about Jesus. It speaks about sin. It speaks about the need for individual, not corporate repentance. Nobody's just born into a Christian family. Everyone has to make a decision to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and bow the knee before him. That's true. But the New Testament also affirms right, that no one you know I mean, comes to God on their own. And if they do so, it's because God draws them to himself. Each must repent of their sin, and repentance and transformation result in a different living. In fact, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has to be accompanied by deeds. And if it is not, Jesus says it's not genuine. So I bring this up because if this prayer actually expresses the true desire of your heart and is the result if it comes out of your lips, this prayer is the result of the work that God has done in your heart to change you and given you a new heart and new affections and a new desire for God, this prayer is meaningful. But if this prayer is something that you simply mouth because you're scared to go to hell or someone has handed you this like a community chess card in the game Monopoly and said, here, here's your get out of jail card. For you. you just pray this thing, mouth it out, you're going to heaven afterwards. You are cruelly deceived. It does not work like that. You know, confessing Jesus Christ, as I've stated over and over again, must be accompanied by outward signs. And one of the first ones that Jesus actually, uh, that we see in the New Testament is baptism. You know, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, go and teach them to observe all I commanded and baptize them as well in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, baptism and confession of faith are so closely linked that when Paul himself is converted, Ananias speaks to him and tells him, after he's healed of his blindness, why do you wait, rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? Now, I don't think this verse is teaching that baptism, unlike the Roman Catholic teaching, actually washes away your sin. I think there's a way to explain that through looking at the uh, chapter in 1 Peter, which talks about baptism, how it doesn't save you, like removing dirt from the body, washing anything away, but appeal to God for a good conscience. I think baptism is an act of obedience to God, saying, God, I want my conscience to be clean before you. I'm walking before you in obedience to your commands. This is what a genuine born-again person who loves God wants to do. God says, jump, and we say, how high? I love you. Now, all this to say is that why it's so important is that baptism and public confession often went hand-to-hand together in the early church. And I think the confession that Paul is speaking about here as he talks about Timothy's confession is most likely Timothy's confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord given at his baptism or when he came to know Christ in front of all the people who knew him. Now, I think this interpretation makes the most sense given that Paul is speaking about eternal life here. So if I were to summarize this, when it comes to true genuine Christianity, genuine Christians fight to live differently on the outside because they are different on the inside. And two, genuine Christians confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and publicly they do this through baptism. Again, internal and external. 
See, being a Christian isn't about just saying some magic words and then living like the devil. You know, God isn't fooled by these things. And I worry that many people in the North American church are cruelly deceived by this lie, thinking things like, no big deal, I'm living in sin. If God wants me to stop, he'll make it happen in his time. I don't need to do anything. I would say, absolutely not. That's not even biblical language or biblical thinking. You fight, but yes, through his power. Being called by God does not mean being a, call, being a couch potato. There's no such thing as a Christian couch potato. In fact, Paul argues that calling is actually what drives you to action. Because you are called, therefore live a certain way. And those who belong to God will persevere and they will fight to the very end. What we need to see in a person's life is not primarily that they've followed a formula, but that they've actually been born again. You know, I love Paul Washer's story that he tells about how once he was preaching in this small little church of about 25 people in a remote area in Alaska. And as he's preaching, this giant of a man walks into the church and plunks himself right down in the front row. And he said, looking at the guy, he looks at him and says he was probably the saddest human being that he had ever seen. And immediately, because he, was, he saw the man, he switched from what he was preaching and started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for the next 45 minutes then. After he was done, he got off and he went to talk to the guy and he wanted to find out about his story. And the man explained to him the reason for his sadness, holding up this big manila envelope and telling him, I just came from the doctor, and the doctor tells me in here, this is my medical records, I have three weeks left to live. I've never been to church. I've never read a Bible. I've never been scared of anything at all in my whole life, but I'm terrified now. Now, Washer, looking at him, asked him, I just preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for the last 45 minutes to you. Did you understand what I said? And the man looked at him and basically said, well, yes, I understood everything that you said. Of course everybody could understand what you were saying, but I just don't get it. And so he looks at him and says, okay, well, let me explain to you. So he spends some time talking to him about repentance and about faith, you know, and, and God changed your heart. And he looks at him and says, no, I hear you, but I don't understand what you're talking about. And he realized at that time that something was missing in the guy's soul. And so as he began talking more, he realized that this man lived on a remote cattle ranch that you could only access by like float plane or riding a horse into it or something, and he really only had three weeks left to live. Paul Washer said to him, I have a plane ticket booked to go home, but I will cancel that plane ticket for tomorrow, and I will go with you, and I will spend the next three weeks with you. I want to talk to you about God and Jesus, and one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to get saved and come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you will die and you will go to hell. That's the only two options. And so he spends the remainder of that night talking to this guy, just working through the scriptures with him, reading a bit. They would work for an hour. He's like, no, I don't get it. Let's read this. Old Testament. They would go back, and then he would do the New Testament. And as they were doing this, one time he grabs the Bible, puts it on the guy's lap, and he says to him, just, just read John 3.16 again. And the guy looks at him and basically says, well, we just read this. He said, I know, I know, but just read it again. And the guy starts to read, and he reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then Paul starts telling us, so he says, the man just starts to shake there. He's just shaking, and he's trembling. He just says, oh, like, oh, I, I, I'm forgiven my sins are gone. I've been clean. I'm going to heaven. I've got eternal life. 
Jesus is my Lord. And the guy's ecstatic, right? He's just shaking and trembling and shouting about Jesus. And Paul Washer looks at him and says, Sir, how do you know that? And he looks at him, the guy says, and points down to the Bible, John 3.16, says, Haven't you read this before? <laughs> and the point is, you see the difference, right? Until the God works on the heart, John 3.16 is just words. But when God opens the heart, all of a sudden you say, that's my God. That's my God who sent His Son for me. That's my God who came to save the world. Those are my sins that have been nailed to the cross. They're gone. My burden is not here anymore. Oh, it's so sweet to think that for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. Those words on a page go and they become words of life. And you feel it, that you're a forgiven person, that something is different on the inside. You are no longer what you used to be. The old person is dead. The new one has come. Jesus said, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You see that? It's not about a specific prayer or some function or going to church or cleaning up your act. It's about transformation. The human problem is that we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says that prior to knowing Jesus Christ, you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked, were corpses apart from God. Dead bodies don't need bandages or advice. They need resurrection. You need to be brought to life. God needs to open your eyes and you need to be born again. And if you're truly born again, you will live and you will act differently. You know, friends, I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I have the privilege of standing at gravesides and I've seen dead bodies. And I'm also a father, which means I've seen a lot of babies as well. And let me tell you, I can tell the difference between a dead body and a baby. It's not that hard. Dead people are very quiet. Babies are very, very loud. Dead people can skip meals for weeks and they never complain that they're hungry. Babies will cry every three hours until you relent and feed them. Dead people can be buried in the ground and left for several years and when you come back later, they'll be exactly where you left them. You leave a baby who can crawl alone for five minutes and you run the risk of having your house burnt down. Friends, that's exactly the difference between the spiritually dead and those who are born again and become spiritual babies and grow up into maturity in Jesus Christ. When you talk to spiritually dead people about the greatness of God and you say, do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know that you're a sinner? Have you thought about where you're going to go when you die one day, do you know about my God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality and lives in unapproachable light because He's so morally pure? Have you ever met anyone like that? And you look at the eyes of a dead person. You see in them, uh, that's an interesting idea. No flicker. Just dull. Moderate interest. Maybe you're crazy. Don't quite believe. It's dead. You offer them the food of God week after week, and they say to you, I'm not hungry. They go weeks without eating from God's Word. You leave them for a few years, and then you come back just like the dead body, and you talk to them. 
And you look at them, you say, you act exactly the same way that you did three years ago. There's no change whatsoever in your life. That's what it means to be a corpse. You can live, you can breathe, you can eat food, but when it comes to spiritual things, you're dead. But somebody who's been born again to a living hope and knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I love actually Christian babies when people come to know Jesus Christ. They're so cute, actually. Things they say and the things that they love. You know, you, you preach the gospel to them. You tell them about Jesus and their hearts just melt. And they tell you like, I want Jesus. You tell them to read the Bible every day. They read the Bible every day. They're excited. You feed them food and they say, I'm hungry. I still want more. Where can I get more of this? It's like 1 Peter 2.2 says about spiritual babies. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You know how you can tell a person is a baby Christian? It's they love Bible milk. And then as babies grow, they start looking at your plate and they say, what are you eating? I want some of that Christian food too. I don't want just milk anymore. What are you eating in your devotional plan? I want to eat that from God's word too. See, when you're born again, you look different because you're not a dead body anymore. You become a baby. You know, I remember hearing of new Christians and usually they get all excited and they go on iTunes and they download every podcast that has the word Christian on it and not realizing that John Piper is very different from Joel Osteen, you know, false teacher. They're so cute, right? They're just like, I downloaded everything Christian and I listened to it, you know? And they, and they, they gnaw on it and it reminds me of a little baby that, you know, you could give them a carrot stick and they will gnaw on it and you can give them an open sharpie and they would gnaw on it as well, you know? One is good for you, the other is terrible for you. But they don't know better, right? Babies crawl around everywhere on the floor. They make messes. But this is what we do as a church family. We clean up after our babies. You come to love your church family and you look at their faces and you get nervous when you're with other people because you're like, these are the safest faces in the world, my church family. You hate your sin. You want to please your spiritual parents. You love Jesus Christ and you say, all my affections and my heart, everything that I want to do is centered around Jesus. And when Jesus says, fight the good fight of the faith, you say, absolutely, Tell me to stand in a line. Tell me to do whatever. You save my soul. Nothing is too hard for my master. See, fighting the good fight of the faith, growing in inner godliness and outward love for people is the mark of a genuine Christian. You know, when Paul ends this section here with a charge that he gives uh, in verses 13 and 14, let's look at it here. He says, based on everything that we just talked about, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And by this he means that he declared himself king before the Jews and Romans. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you confess Jesus as king, Timothy, just as Jesus confessed that he was king, this is your good confession, you confess Jesus as king, confess him as Lord, you are also to keep the commandment unstained. And I think by commandment or the commandment here, it's just a phrase that appears also in Peter and it means the entirety of the, the Christian life. It's like keep the commandment or keep the faith, you know, keep the walk, the whole thing. Live out the Christian life. Keep your Christian life. Chase after it. Run away from sin. Pursue the things of God and make sure you do it and not entertaining anything else in your life. Do that until Jesus Christ comes back. Do this knowing that Jesus Christ confessed the truth 
and he paid for it with his life, and that he and his Father watch you right now and urge you to live out your confession. And if you know this reality and this truth has settled into your soul and you are born again, you can worship God. I think this is exactly why Paul talking about God, talking about his miraculous, marvelous plan to save human beings and the great call he gives to Christians cannot help but burst into spontaneous worship with his pen. Look at verses 15 and 16 which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You know, he begins by talking about the pursuit of God. But here's the deal as a Christian. You can't pursue God without having your heart moved by him and worshiping him as well. The more you know about God and the more you look like Him, the more you simply want to fall at His feet and confess Him as Lord. You know, this world is full of people who are looking for heroes. Everybody's got heroes. You ask people in life, who's your hero? For some people, it's that politician, Justin Trudeau. Want to be like him? Just a man. I would not want to be like him. Some people look at Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, richest man in the world. Some people say, I want to be like him. If only I could be successful like him. Just a man, he will die one day. There's kids, right? Iron Man or Tony Stark. The truth is, he's just a comic book character. And as crazy as he is, he dies as well, too. You know, it doesn't matter. All these things will pass away. Nobody else has a hero or a God who is like our God. The God who is the King of all kings. The Lord of all lords of all time who has always been, will always be, who lives in unapproachable light, representing his brilliant purity. Nobody is like him. Nobody can come close to him because nobody with our sin can stand in the presence of an almighty God like that without dying. That's the God that we worship and the God that we consider to be worthy of our praises. You can't help but worship a God like that. I put this in your outline, number three. True Christians fight the good fight by worshiping God for His greatness. You know, friends, as we wrap this up today, I just want to ask there, the question is, are you born again? Do you delight in the things of God and your innermost being? Does the good news of Jesus Christ excite your heart and is it your desire to live for Him? Nobody can see God and live right because of our sins, but we are so grateful to God that when we could not make our way to Him, He took on human flesh so that He could stand in our presence and save us and not kill us as He did His redemptive work. Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today, what I want to say to you is that I want you to turn from your sins. You don't know how long you have left to live in this life. Don't delay. Look at God. Do you see Him? As he is, do you see with open eyes the greatness of Christ and his saving gospel? I want you to know him and to grow in Jesus Christ. Some of you, I don't know, I might not see you again next year. You might have an unexpected death, but there is hope for you if you know Jesus Christ. For those of us who are brothers and sisters professing Christians here, I also want to ask you, how are you living in life? Do you think that you're a Christian because you've prayed some prayer? Do you have affection from God? Is your life characterized by a running away from sin and a running towards the things of God? 
Or do you find that you resist God's commands and you do Christianity on your own terms? You obey the things that you want to obey. When it comes to things maybe like baptism or whether it comes to your finance, you say, no, no, that's on my terms. No, God can't have that. I would just simply say to you, who is truly Lord over your life? Is it Jesus Christ or is it you? Jesus warns that anyone who's ashamed of him before men and operates on their own terms, he also will be ashamed of them on their, on, before his Father. And he will leave you to operate on your own terms, just in a place of eternal fire and punishment, as you continue to be God, your own God, for the rest of eternity. You know, if you're truly born again, brothers and sisters, and this is you. You hear about Jesus. You hear about the things of God. And you say, yes, amen. That speaks to my soul. That is food for me and water to my thirsty heart. You're a born again believer. Just shows the fruit. And I have every reason to believe as far as humanly as possible to believe I will see you once, one day again. Even if you die in Jesus' land, in the land of our King of Kings. There is such good hope for us as Christians. But while we remain in this flesh, the command for us is fight the good fight of the faith by the power that God supplies and continue to live a life of repentance and growth and spirit-filled worship of God. That is the joy of the Christian life. Let's pray.